Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture for today is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax, tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to, of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his, uh, up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Crystal. And it's, uh, it's good to be back together. Um, it's interesting because it's been so fun having the kids in here, but then when they go to kids' church, it feels like we're all like really separated and dispersed and I think it'd be super fun maybe one Sunday for us all just to go to kids' church together, you know, and be like, hey, let's, uh, let's take the party. They, uh, they're taking a ton of the energy and stuff. Um, but man, it's, it's good to be together. I think as we're in the series on parables, and now we're in our second week looking at the parables of Jesus, um, I think something is like profound is being communicated by Jesus. And of course, anything he communicates to us is well thought out, profound, important, really not turning the world upside down, but turning the world right side up. And I think what he does in parables, and as we're stepping into this in Luke 18, is, you know, I find many times that like when I'm trying to correct my kids, I'm just like going straight to the bottom line. I'm like, stop it. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do that again. You know, and it's just like as simple as possible, but as like thoughtless as possible, I'm trying to correct my kids by just saying, stop, you know. And what I love is like, what would it take for me to actually sit down and tell my kids a story, right? <laughs> to be like, there were once two people. One this, one this. And I'm like sharing this story in a way that is actually like teaching them way more than if I just said stop it or do more of this or clean your room. You know, like I'm actually getting to the heart of the issue. And what I love is Jesus using not very many words, but he takes a, a, a short story and it's not the knee-jerk reaction of a worn-out parent. Instead, it's the careful and thoughtful formulation of a story from our creator who desires our flourishing to teach us how to live in his kingdom and teach us how to live in his ways. And uh, why does he speak in parables? Uh, we learn a lot through few words, but then also it fulfills prophecy. Matthew 13, 30, 34 through 35, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he says nothing to them without a parable. So there were certain crowds at times where he was only telling parables. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. 
And man, I just picture, you know, we spent so many years in Oklahoma City where instead of like our like black gold is dirt in Iowa, you know, like their black gold is oil. And it's like, man, they sometimes like are using like 20,000 PSI of pressure to frack in oil fields to bring up stuff that's been hidden in the earth for a really long time. And in many ways, like a parable is bringing to the surface things that have just been hidden since the foundation of the world. So he's fulfilling prophecy when he speaks in parables. But then second, parables are for those with ears to hear. In Matthew 13, 13, uh, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Man, so for the next few weeks, our prayer, what we're wanting to do is have ears to hear. Ears to hear what Jesus is communicating to us. Instead of just kind of sitting back and being really passive, like we're leaning forward to be like, teach us your ways. Teach us through these parables what it looks like to live, to live in the ways that you've designed us. So uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14, you might recognize this is just right after the last parable. So the last parable that we covered was right before this, and now we're stepping this next one. I think when you're coming off of the last parable of the persistent widow who was talking to an unrighteous judge, I think you could be like, well, I'm kind of righteous. I'm not an unrighteous judge. And, and, you know, and so it's interesting, I think, that the next thing Jesus talks about is righteousness, and talking about how we should approach even thinking about ourselves. So look at verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus had observed something. He's not pulling this out of thin air. Jesus had observed on the ground in first century Israel that there were people who, when they thought if they were righteous, they thought of themselves. When they thought if they were righteous, they thought of their spiritual resume. And he is saying, I have seen this. And so I am telling this parable for those who have trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And when they think about themselves, they think poorly about other people. So it's like, oh, am I right with you? Like righteous is just, am I right with you? And God, when I think about am I right with you, I'm really impressed with myself. And I think less about people around me. And he's like, that is what I am speaking into right there. They consider themselves that they had righteousness. And man, this could be job righteousness. This could be, I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. This could be family righteousness, thinking of our life and being like, you know what, I think I'm a pretty good parent, especially when I compare myself to those people. So God, you must be impressed with me. Theological righteousness, I have good theology. God certainly prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness, I read more, I'm more articulate, I'm more culturally savvy than other people, and so um, obviously I'm superior when I think about me compared to other people in the eyes of God. Could be flexibility righteousness. 
in a world that's just busy. There isn't very much margin. If you, you want to get together with somebody, they're way too busy. But I'm actually flexible. I have margin in my life. I actually make time for others. Shame on those who don't. We could look at our own mercy righteousness. I have compassion to other people. I care about the poor, the disadvantaged, and everybody else should too. Um, legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, chew. I don't get, date girls that do that either. And uh, too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Like we could think that direction when we think, are we right with God? And then we're comparing ourselves to other people. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely. I stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote the way that I vote. And we could just keep going on and on with things that we could compare ourselves to other people as we think about, are we right with God? And this happened in his day. It happens in our day. And God forbid that we ever become a church where the DNA of our church is that we are holier than thou. The DNA of our church is that, hey, we're a bunch of people who like are super Christians and like, you can't play with us. You can't hang with us. We're in a different category than you are. Now, Jesus is going to show we are in a different category, but it's not a superior category if that's our heart. The church should be one of the most welcoming, level ground. Like, that's why we take time. It can feel awkward to be like that greeting time, especially if you're a super introvert. But our greeting time is so important because what we're saying is, man, there might be all sorts of things throughout the week that feel like they separate us from each other. Jobs you have, offices you have, access you have to certain things that other people might not. And it's like here the ground is level. And we can actually approach each other because of how Jesus has approached us. So he goes on. So he says, this is why I'm doing this parable for those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, this is actually the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, one thing we have to realize is culturally, we really don't know these people. Like when they heard this in the first century, they thought of Jack and Frank, right? It's like, I know these people. We, you know, your neighbor is not a Pharisee. And you probably don't have a neighbor that's a tax collector in the way that these people were at this time. When, uh, when we hear the word Pharisee, a Pharisee is culturally one of the most respected religious leaders in the community. The Apostle Paul, since he was a little kid in elementary, he was training to be a Pharisee. Uh, some people believe that Pharisees actually had a majority of the Old Testament memorized. From memory, they could tell you almost the entire Old Testament. That was part of being a Pharisee, is you knew God's word better than anybody else knew God's word. And, uh, and if you had a question about the Bible, a Pharisee was the person to ask. So we have a Pharisee who is approaching the temple, and we have a tax collector. A tax collector is a corrupt, 
government official who's getting rich on the backs of other people who can't afford to be taken advantage of. So when you have a tax collector in the first century, with the tax collector, they work for the Roman Empire, and the tax collector lives on the ground, and a tax collector could go up to Patty and say, you owe me $1,000. If you don't pay me $1,000, you are going to jail. And it's like, okay, so I'm paid $1,000. Then I go to the Roman Empire, and I'm like, hey, I collected the tax. Here's 600 bucks. And that's how they did it, <laughs> is that they could imprison you for not paying, and they always charged you way more than they were actually going to pass along. And so it is frustrating because it's people who can't afford to be taken advantage of and they're being taken advantage of, and it is prolific, and that's how tax collectors operated. Um, it's likely here that he was also a Jew, because he's going up to the temple to pray. So it seems like culturally, perhaps, so it's not just that he's a tax collector, but he sold out his people in order to make money off of the back of the Roman Empire. So he was certainly not welcome. Arms were not open for him to come to the temple. People probably thought he was coming to the temple to just find more people to take money from. I'll never forget a Silas, who's now 13, which I can't believe that, when he was just a month or two old, uh, through Compassion International, I was able to take a trip uh, to Kenya and just kind of see um, a lot of work that this great ministry was doing in Kenya. And I remember that we went throughout different parts of Nairobi and stuff, but then we went out in the countryside to where the Maasai warriors are, the people that kind of like jump up and down and a really neat group of, of people, uh, but it's a really impoverished area. And so it's very common for the Maasai to have several, like a whole family multiple kids and everything, and you just have one room. And some of you have been in huts like this where it's just one room, dirt floor, kitchen is in a corner, and the whole family lives like that. And so, so we, were, we were seeing that all over the place and seeing ways that, that uh, this organization was helping a lot of this like systemic poverty and stuff. And no joke, we were on one of these like bumpy gravel roads where you're doing like that number and stuff. And then we come up on a house that looked like middle-class America house. I mean, it was just like pristine, like watered grass, like brick house. And it was like, where did this come from? Where did this house come from? And I remember like I was so, it was such a stark difference from all the poverty around them that I asked the people in the van, I was like, who lives there? You know, thinking it must be like, like be this you know, entrepreneur that's created all these jobs or whatever, they're like, oh, that's the tax collector lives there. And I just remember like being like, can we burn the house down right now? I mean, like I was filled with this rage. Like, I can't believe, is it not obvious who's keeping all the money in this community? Because he's the only person that has a house like that. And everybody else is living in places with a dirt floor, you know. And it was sickening, but it was the way it was. And so it's shocking here uh, that even this is being brought up. And surely, as we're hearing this parable, we're like, oh man, Jesus is going to roast this tax collector. Like, he's going to take him down, and this Pharisee is going to be like, oh, everybody be like the Pharisee. Nobody be like the tax collector. Let's go get him. You know, like, uh, that's what I think I'm waiting for 
to hear this. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm not him. So he, he's, he's going negative. Then he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So in this story, the Pharisee is praying to God. He's really reviewing his resume to God about how great he's living. He starts by reviewing all the negative things other people do that he's not doing. I'm not like other men who are extortioners. I'm not unjust. I give people what they deserve. I'm not an adulterer. And saving the best for last, I'm not a tax collector like this person. And um, I think in the way he's saying it, he's presuming that all those things are true about the tax collector. This guy is probably an adulterer. He's an extortioner. He's doing all these things. Then the Pharisee goes from negative to positive, showing how good he's doing as a follower of God. He fasts twice a week. So if you read the Old Testament carefully, it looks like nationwide, people were called to, to fast once a year at the Day of Atonement. So once a year, all God's people would come together, and there would be this massive work at the temple where, where people's sins are being atoned for, and we see it's just a shadow of what we'd see Jesus do to truly atone once and for all for the sins of mankind. But once a year, people were called to fast. He fasts 104 days a year. So it's like, I'll take your fast and raise you right? Because of how hyper-spiritual I am. He's excelling in denying himself food. Most people were supposed to tithe their income. He said he tithed everything, okay? So not just his income. Uh, if he went to his garden and there were 10 cucumbers, he would make sure he was giving a couple to somebody else. Like he was tithing everything to kind of take like, hey, I'm going to give 10%. I'm going to give 10% of everything I have is a bare minimum of anything that comes in. Um, so, so, so far here, I think everybody's being impressed with the Pharisee. He's setting the bar high. <laughs> They're expecting Jesus to tell people, this is your example. What I love is Jesus does not address one thing the Pharisee brings up. Jesus isn't like, well, I mean, I'm not against this. And he doesn't like parse any of it. When Jesus hears this commentary on his resume, he gives no response. He just simply transitions to the tax collector. And he just, he just leaves the Pharisee there, transitions to the tax collector, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. The tax collector doesn't deserve to be close to God. This guy knows his place. He's standing far off. I think we're here in the sanctuary. I think if the tax collector, like he might be out in the parking lot, maybe be kind of around the corner, quick to get out of the building the second that he knew that we were coming around the corner. At this point, we have to stop and realize, like, everything in us should hate this guy. He sold out his people 
Um, part of the mission of our church is to love God, love people, push back darkness. This guy's life would be darkness that we'd be trying to push back. And if you think I'm overreacting, look how Matthew speaks about tax collectors in chapter 18, verse 15 of his book. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, if his heart is so hard, then tell it to the church that hopefully this person would repent of their sin and come into the light. So this is a way that, that Jesus is giving us for how we can come alongside each other, repent in community together, walk in the light, not live in the darkness. So if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, so we're at the end of this person having a chance to have his heart softened. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So at the end of all this stuff, if this person's heart is so hard, just be like, man, he's a tax collector. So Matthew is writing this, and what's super crazy is Matthew was a tax collector. That's what he did for a living. When Jesus came up to him and said, follow me, he was sitting at his booth taking advantage of people. And so Matthew could be like, hey, man, we get a bad rap. It's not as bad as people think. He's like, no, man, it's true. <laughs> like, we are the worst. And here's what he's doing in verse 13. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Man, I mean, this is like Jesus rocking our world could be super impressed with this religious guy and then Jesus is like hey I'm paying attention to this guy over here I'm paying attention to this guy over here who and the Greek in here is he is not non-stop beating his chest it's a continual verb that he is continuing to beat his chest his plea is simple he probably has more connections. His resume in the eyes of the Roman Empire is probably more impressive than the Pharisee, but his words are simple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I think this is like such an amazing part of Jesus' parable is that there are three things I think that are shocking about this guy's statement. First, he has an accurate view of God. Like he goes to the temple he doesn't stay at home and, like, drink his sorrows away. Like, he's actually coming to the only one who can actually do something about the conviction that he is feeling for the life that he's living. And it's like, man, you came to the right place. Now, you're surrounded by the wrong people with wrong views of the God that they're praying to, but you're at the right place. He has an accurate view of God. And then second... He has an accurate view of himself. Jesus isn't being like, oh, no, man, like, it's not that bad. Like, you need to have good self-esteem. You know, I think Jesus is like, no, man, it's that bad. Like, you need mercy. You are a sinner. And you see it clearly. You see God clearly. You see yourself clearly. The Pharisee, if he saw himself and God more clearly, he would be pounding his chest 
saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. He would not be boasting before the one who made him, before the Holy One. Instead, he'd be on his knees saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. John 16, 8 says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's one of the interesting times that Jesus says, it's actually good for me to ascend to heaven. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Second, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we see the Holy Spirit is convicting this tax collector to realize his sin and be broken by his sin, to be crushed by his sin, where even if people are, are around him are making fun of him, he doesn't care. He's beating his chest saying, I'm crying out to the only one that can do anything about the situation that I've had my eyes open to. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not something that he's just heard that somebody ought to do. He feels it so deeply, doesn't care what anyone around him thinks. He is coming to Jesus, feeling the way he is feeling. So he has an accurate view of God, he has an accurate view of himself, and he has an appropriate response. Appropriate response not to hide from God. That would be an inappropriate response. There's nowhere we can go where his presence is not there. That would be an inappropriate response. An appropriate response when you have your eyes open to your sin is to go running into the open arms of his God. Not the turned back looking away, but the open arms that are reaching out to you. And Jesus shows the scandalous grace. He wants to make sure everyone knows the lesson to the parable. So if it is not clear enough, look how he wraps this up in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So justified or justification is just a fancy word that I think when you boil down the meaning says it's just as if he never sinned. If it's like, yeah, man, we're justified. So we're uh, big concept in theology is that we're justified by faith alone. Like the Bible teaches that, that it's by faith alone in Jesus that we are justified or faith alone in Jesus in a way that God can say like, yes, that is a sinful person, but the way that they've come to me and Jesus' blood that was shed for them, the resurrection that conquered the penalty of death by defeating death so that as we follow him, we can follow him in life and have the hope of everlasting life, that God the Father can say, when someone comes to my son, they're justified which I've taken their sin and moved as far as the east is from the west. So in some ways you could say, it's just as if they never sinned. It's just as if it was never broken, the relationship, because God has repaired it through the death, life, resurrection of Jesus. And so here he says, that man went to his house justified rather than the other. So Jesus is saying here, the Pharisee was no better off going to the temple that day. The Pharisee was no better off opening his mouth and giving his long resume to try and impress God. The Pharisee was no better off going to the temple and the tax collector is forgiven. 
It's right between the tax collector and God. And this is a story that Jesus wants us to hear through this parable, to chew on, to be like, what does that mean for my community? What does that mean for my neighbors? What does that mean for my friends? What does that mean for my family if this is the type of Savior we are dealing with here? And we name this church Sacred Mission Church, not because of us, but because Jesus himself is on a sacred mission for the people of rural Iowa to have us all live in this grace. At the end of verse 14, he wraps this up. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, I mean, if, if we each live to be 85 years old, like, or older, like, that sentence we should chew on for the rest of our lives. Like, this is the type of Savior we have. This is the type of God who's actually desiring us to flourish and to be alive and well following him and is his kingdom as he is the king and he's teaching us a new way to live and here he's saying anyone who exalts himself will be humbled because if you if you exalt yourself like where is there room there for god where is there room for god to work if all that you see is yourself you're not looking to him but for the person that's humbling themselves and not being a doormat but appropriately seeing god and seeing themselves that it's like, man, there's all sorts of room for God to exalt himself and give us the courage and give us the patient endurance and give us the hope to really advance and advance in the joy of God and advance in what he's doing in our lives. Man, what if we, what if we start to see the worst of our town, right? Like, what if we start to see the worst of our town being people who are just one interaction with God away from beating their chests and saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And for me to be able to say, man, I've got somebody you need to meet. Because as you are beating your chest, like, that's what I'm doing too. Like, I'm not above you. I'm I'm someone that maybe met Jesus before you, but the same way and needing the same Savior. He will forgive you as he has and continues to forgive me. Because Jesus isn't like, okay, now we take care of this. Like, now let's see what it looks like to be a super Christian. He's like, no, whenever we're trying to trust ourselves, he's bringing us back to this, bringing us back to his ways. He has his just wonderful way for Jesus to exalt himself through our church. What a joy for us to not be a self-exalting church. I believe he will bless our efforts as we bow our knee to him. And uh, man, I think the most appropriate way for us to begin responding to him is for us to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before him. Not to be like, so I can be exalted. <laughs> no, humble ourselves so that he can be exalted in our lives. And uh, an appropriate way uh, for us to step into this is the humble table of communion. And uh, if uh, Christy wants to come up and Uh, Get ready to lead us into that. And if you're serving communion, feel free to to come up too. But before we talk about communion, I think um, it would be a total miss. It'd be a swing and a miss if having Jesus bringing this into the room, allowing this truth to invade this space for us to not 
to not be like, man, if you walked in here and you would say, I have not humbled myself before Jesus yet. Um, I, I know a lot of us are at different places with Jesus, but know this, like a beautiful thing is, is he is patient. He is patient to bring us back here week after week. He's patient to bring us into community. He's patient to continue to communicate to us like, hey, you have no idea the life that's on the other side of you humbling yourself. It's even called eternal life because it never ends because of what Jesus does when we bow our knee to him and say, I don't want to be the king of my world anymore. I want to actually appropriately see myself and see you, God, let you get huge in my life, and I want you to save me. Save me from my sins. Give me the freedom that this guy walked away from the temple with. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage you, man, that could look like you walking down and talking to me or talking to Casey or John or Pam, um, talking to anybody that you know is someone who's walking with Jesus to say, man, pray with me. I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to Jesus right now. Uh, why would I not want to live in this uh, for, you know, I, I don't want to be away from this for even another day. And so, um, man, would you do that? Like, would you come to him? Would you humble yourself? so that he can be exalted in your life. And man, that could, my parents were not Christians when I did that, and now they're a part of this church. They're on vacation a lot, but they're part of this church. <laughs> Trust me, though. Um, that comes, yeah, yeah, that's the blessing of retirement. So, um, But, you know, I had no idea what Jesus was going to do just by, by giving my life to him. You know, and that's true for us. And we don't know what he's going to do a year from now. We, we don't know what he's going to do five years from now. But when we humble ourselves, he can be exalted. And that's not just going to be for you. That's going to be for people around you. That's going to be for our community, our families. Maybe multi-generational things will be starting to go in a direction today based on us humbling ourselves and letting him be exalted. And so, so please don't walk out of here without, and if you're like, I don't know if I'm there yet, uh, let us pray with you, man. Like, I don't, God's not playing hide and go seek here. He's, he's drawing us into the light and we want to pray and, and ask the Lord just to make that so clear to you uh, that, uh, that he is drawing you to him. And we can share the good news of what Jesus has done even more. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, maybe you've been a follower for two minutes and have given your life to him, or you've been following him for 20 years. This table, the biggest warning at this table is don't approach the humble table of communion. It's humble, but we are warned very strongly, don't come up here lightly. Don't come up here flippantly. Instead, really consider what we're doing here. We're, we're humbling ourselves. Confessing sin is very appropriate. Uh, asking him, man, when I commune with you, Lord, change me, humble me, so that you can be exalted in my life. So please come. The way that we do it here is uh, just take some of the bread. They'll be served to you. Uh, then we have both uh, juice and wine and take that. And uh, then we'll go back to our uh, chairs and then we'll just stay standing and we'll take it together as family. So let's come. Let's respond to our Savior.